to walk you through what we're talking about. We're talking about the week before Jesus hung on the cross, the Passover week, and how Jesus fulfilled all the covenants that God had been speaking up until that point, how Jesus actually became the Passover lamb. So I have a few items here. Um, this right here symbolizes the oil that Mary poured over Jesus to anoint his body for burial when he was at Lazarus' house. This, kids, pay attention to what these are because when you hear them, uh, in a minute, we're going to have the adults hide these things around the room. You're going to have you close your eyes. Then we're going to have you children go find these items and bring them back to your seat. And then when you hear me talk about them in the sermon, you're going to bring them back up to the table, and I'm going to check them off of our board. Got it? Good, kids? Good, good, good. I'm trying to look for other kids. No other kid. Just, wow. You guys are going to have a lot of items. Congratulations. All right. So. Um, this is the Lamb of God. This is the grape juice that Jesus used at the Passover meal. These Pop-Tarts are the, um, the bread that Jesus broke at his Passover meal. This is a rock that's been broken in two because when Jesus came up from the grave, the earth shook and the rocks broke. This is also the blood of Jesus at the Passover meal. This is the blood of Jesus that they would catch, or the blood of the lamb that the priest would catch and throw on the altar. This symbolizes the Pharisees. Oh, yep, that'll work. Um, the Pharisees who inspected the lambs for blemish. This is Jesus riding on the colt down to Jerusalem. This is the shofar that would start the Passover celebrations. All right, so far. Um, this is the whip that whipped Jesus. This is Peter's sword because he was going into battle. This is the money at the money changers' stations in the temple. This is Jack's personal wallet. So $12 in here. Don't you take it. All right. Um, and this right here is the veil, the veil of the temple where it was ripped into from top to bottom. So those are my items. Children, I need you to close your eyes and be honest for a couple minutes. I need a bunch of adults to quickly come and grab an item and go hide it, maybe under a chair or back at the sound booth or around the room on the stage, like wherever you want. Grab it, get the table cleared off, go, 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 go. Great job, guys. Keep it, keep it going. Keep it going. Get that stuff out of here. Go, 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 go. That's Jack's wallet, yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> keep it going. Keep it going. Keep it going. Keep it going. You guys are so awesome. Are your eyes still closed, kids? Keep them closed. Keep them closed. All right. Oh, we still have a veil. Somebody, veil me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right, good job. I'm going to try real hard not to snot in you in the microphone today. All right, and the veil is hidden. Oh, 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 Jesus needs to be hidden quickly. Go, go, go. <laughs> the cross, that's the cross, if you didn't know. I forgot about that. <laughs> All right, we're going to open the eyes in five, four, three, two, one. Open your eyes, kids. All right, whoa, 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 whoa. All right, I want you to find as many items as you can. Bring them back to your chair, and you're going to wait until you hear me talk about them, and then we'll check them off the board, okay? On to the count of three. One, two, three. Get an item, take it back to your chair. Go, 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 go. And if you're an adult and you want to act like a child, you are welcome to just do that all you want. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> you can just, just go for it. All right, find those items. Find those items. We got Jesus. Woo! Yes! Way to go, girl. Take it back to your seat. Good job, good job. All right, are we still looking? Are we still looking? Keep, keep hunting. Let's take, an, let's take a quick inventory. Did somebody find the oil, the perfume, the canola? Yep, check. Did somebody find, somebody found the money? All right, good job. Did somebody find the sword? Kids, did you find the sword yet? All right, we still got to find the sword. Keep looking for the sword. Who has the Pop-Tarts? Okay, got the Pop-Tarts. Who's got the inspector hat? Who's got the inspector hat? Oh, it's hiding still. Oh, Jack got the money. Good. What was it? The rocks. Okay. Smart man. Nobody has the inspector hat. Who has the grape juice? Oh, grape juice. Yep. Who has the Capri Suns? Micah. Boom, boom, boom. Who has the whip, the belt? Who's got the belt? Anybody? We're missing the belt, kids. Uh-oh. All right. Who has the shofar? 
Oh, the inspector hat. Good job. Who's got the shofar? Good job. Okay. Who has the lamb? We got the lamb. All right. Who has the Gatorade? Yay. Who's got the veil? All right. Who's got the cross? Yeah, we know we got the cross. Is that everything? Cross. Did we find the cross? The sword. You found the sword? No. Who's got the sword? Kids, find the sword. Come on. Find that big wooden sword. You can do it. Go, 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 go. Did you find it? I'm just yelling for fun. Yep. All right. Cool. Who's got the sword? Any hints of who hid the sword? You hit it. Give us a hint. Guitar. Guitar. Careful, 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 careful. I don't see it. <laughs> oh, on the ground. Back there. On the ground. I see it. Right there. Right there. Yes, we got the sword. Give it a round of applause. Woo. All right. Good job. All right, now, kids, you found everything. Great job. As you hear me talk about your item, I want you to come up, and I'm going to give you some candy, some yummy, yummy candy, if your parents are cool with it. All right? Here we go. I am going to do my best because there's a lot of content that I just I love to go through. There's a great book. Um, it's called Killing Jesus. Anybody ever read it? Killing Jesus, written by, of all the people in the world, Bill O'Reilly. <laughs> <laughs> um, before he fell from graces, he wrote this book called Killing Jesus. And it's actually a really good book, pulling in what the Bible says happened and then what history and the Jews and the Romans and what history says happened at the same time frame. It's great. So I'm going to read quite a bit from that book um, just to bring some context. But I want to talk about God's covenant to us. So from the beginning of time, God shows his people that um, he's with them and that he's going to provide the sacrifice to cover over their sins. Adam and Eve, they, they sin and they are naked and they, they are embarrassed. God provides a sacrifice. God kills an animal. I think God kills a lamb to show them there has to be blood payment for your sins. The blood of the lamb covers over your sins and he gives them the animal skin to cover their sacrifice. So from the very beginning, God is teaching them that he's the one that's going to provide for them. And then God calls his people to be a chosen people and to be a blessing to the nation. So he says, you are mine and you are going to bless the whole world. Through you, the whole world is going to be blessed. The next promise is that God teaches his chosen people how to live and then he gives them the law. And then they quickly realize nobody can fulfill the law. It just, it's impossible. But he promises that he will provide the sacrifice. And again, the blood payment has to be made in order to fulfill everything that God has called us to do, to be with God, to be united with him. Then they cry out for a king and they're asking God for a king and God gives them an earthly king, but it's terrible. And then God says, listen, one day, I'm going to give you the perfect king. I'm going to, one day I'm going to give you the perfect prophet that can be the mediator between you and me and connect you and unite you once again. Jesus Christ, he becomes the light of the world. He becomes the blessing to all the nations, right? Jesus fulfills that promise. Jesus becomes the high priest. Jesus becomes the king of all kings. Jesus fulfills the law and he gives us the new covenant. Jesus becomes the Passover lamb, the perfect sacrifice once and for all his blood covering over all of our sins. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Revelations 13, 8 says that the lamb was slain before the creation of the world. John 1, 29 says, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So I want to explain quickly that the, the Passover the ritual of the Passover and then the Day of Atonement leading up to Jesus. And I'm just going to blaze through this. There's many other sermons I can point you to and we've done in the past to go deep. But I'm trying to catch you up quickly to what's happening with the Passover. So for at least 1,200 years, 1,500 years, I can't remember exactly, this has been happening consistently. So the Passover started with Egypt when God calls the Israelites out of Egypt and they have the 10 plagues and then the, the night of the 10th plague, the firstborn child is about to be killed by the angel of the Lord. And God says, I want you to sacrifice an animal, a lamb, put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost and when the angel of death comes, he's going to pass over your home. Because the blood of the lamb is the one that prevents you from dying for your sins. Amen? 
So then he tells people, from now on, I want you to remember this ceremony. Remember the Passover forever. Do this as a, as a thing every single year. And so when they did the Passover, here's kind of what the normal thing would, would look like. They would have, on the 10th day of the month, draw a quick timeline. This is the 10th day of the month. They would begin to select the lambs. Okay, um, and they would then inspect it for blemish. On the 14th day, this was the day that they actually had the Passover. Okay, I'm going to do a terrible job here. Forgive me. 14th day is the actual Passover. There's several things that they ritually do throughout him. They select the lamb. They inspect the lamb for blemish. They get rid of the leaven in the home, and then they rush in for Passover, okay? And so uh, we'll dive deeper here in just a second. But basically, they would pick out their perfect lamb. It couldn't have any blemish. They had to, if it had blemish, they had to replace it with another lamb. Then they would take it to the priest to inspect, to make sure that it was, it was good and it was approved by the priest. It would take several days for that. They would sweep out their houses with leaven to make sure that there was no yeast or symbolic sin inside of the home. And then on the day of Passover, at 3 o'clock on the day of Passover, that was the ninth hour, they would blow the shofar, they would rush into the temple, and all of a sudden, millions of people they think there's roughly four million people coming to jerusalem for these times okay so millions of people rush in and they bring their lambs to the priest when they get there the priest slaughters the lamb they take the blood of the lamb and they start passing it down the line like a bloodline over to the altar so um like they're passing the blood like this down to the altar they splash it on the altar then they take that lamb and they hang the lamb up by its forearms right here and here they hang it up and they hanging down and then they would skin the lamb quickly and then they would take the lamb off they'd hand it back to the family the family would then go home and stick it in the oven where they would bake it and have it ready for dinner in just a little while at the dinner they would do a few different things but primarily i want you to pay attention to the four cups and to the the three pieces of bread so they would have the three pieces of bread <clears throat> The matzah bread, it was unleavened, which means it didn't have yeast, and it was striped and pierced for 1,200, 1,500 years before Jesus came, striped and pierced. They didn't fully understand why. They did understand that it wasn't, it didn't have any leaven in it because they had to do it in haste. They had to hurry and get out of Egypt so they didn't have time to rise, all right? But as we know, yeast symbolizes sin. So um, the matzah bread was unleavened, but they would also have it pierced and striped in anticipation of their coming Messiah. They take the middle piece, they'd have three pieces of matzah that covered in white cloth, and they would put in the middle piece, they'd pull it out, they'd break it apart, and then they would put it back in, okay? I don't think they fully understood what was happening. Why three pieces? Why break the middle? Then they had four cups of wine. And the four cups of wine symbolized, the first one was, I will bring you out of Egypt. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you with a demonstration of my power, and I will take you out. And so the whole time they're thinking they're remembering Egypt, but they're also proclaiming what is to come with the coming Savior. Amen? So they do this year after year after year after year, and there's a whole lot more that they do. Um, in remembrance that is prophetic towards Jesus, but they've been doing it for generations, getting ready for this week when Jesus is here, okay? The other thing I want you to pay attention to, it's not the same time frame, but it's the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement was like the Lord's day of reckoning with sin, the sin of the nation of Israel. And so on this day, the whole nation would come together to the temple. They would bring two lambs together or two goats together. And they would cast lots in front of the whole nation, cast lots. One of the lambs would be selected as the scapegoat. The other lamb would be selected as the sacrificial goat, okay? So the scapegoat, the high priest, this is his big moment throughout the year where he, on behalf of the whole nation, is dealing with the sins of the nation. He puts his hand on the, the forehead of the, of the scapegoat, and he places the sins of the whole nation on this scapegoat, symbolically, and then they lead that goat out into the desert as far away as a person could get this goat, and then they send them free, symbolizing that the sins of the nation of Israel have now gone as far as the east is from the west. 
And then they would take the second goat, and they would take that as the sacrificial goat. They would slaughter it. They would take the blood of the lamb. And this is the one time a year where the high priest got to go into the, wow, sorry, Eli, um, the most holy place in the temple. So in the temple, you had the outer courts where the altar was. You had the, the holy place inside of the temple where they could come and go and do daily sacrifices. But then you had the top secret, do not enter most holy place. And this was a cube. It was about 30 feet by 30 feet by 30 feet. Um, the stairs leading up to it were 15 feet. There was a ceiling 15 feet. So 60 feet tall, six stories tall was the ceiling of the temple. Okay, And so then they had this separation, this giant temple veil that would separate God's and all of his holiness from the rest of the nation. And this temple, the, the veil, they said that it was around six inches thick and it's 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide. They think it took around 300 to 400 people to lift it into place, just tremendously heavy. And it kept God in the box. And once a year, the high priest had the honor to go in with the blood of the nation and spray it on the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark of the Covenant was the Ten Commandments. There was a pot of manna to remember back in the days of Egypt. And then there was Aaron's staff that had budded into almond leaves that was inside of that. And then on top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat the mercy seat of God, and they would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat to symbolize what was to come. So this would happen once a year, year after year after year after year after year after year, okay? So that's kind of the context of what's coming up to this week. Let's look at the context of Rome and of Jerusalem in that time. So Rome was founded 753 B.C., okay, 750 years B.C., um, it was founded 432 B.C., the Babylonian exile and the destruction of the first temple. So the Jews are kicked out of Jerusalem, um, and they end up in Babylon. The temple is destroyed. Everything is fallen. They've gone from tremendous glory to just nothing as a nation. Another 100 years later, so 352 B.C., the second temple is built. They rebuild the temple, and the Jews begin to come back to Jerusalem. The first gladiator games, they start around 264 B.C. So if you imagine the movie, imagine that's kind of the world that's happening at that time. 68 B.C., Julius Caesar is appointed to Spain. Jerusalem, just after, is attacked and invaded by Rome. And now the, the Jewish world is completely intermeshed with Rome and everything that comes with it. And it starts to get real, real bad. 44 B.C., Julius Caesar is killed. Caesar Augustus takes over. He appoints Herod the Great over the Jews. And then a few years later, Herod takes over the temple, but he also renovates the temple about 20 years later, and he adds on this fortress right next to the temple so that they can squash any Jewish problems that come up along the way. Okay? So that's kind of getting up to the point. 4 B.C., let me read this to you. The worst rebellion was in around 4 B.C. when Jesus was about one year old. A rebel faction broke into the great palace fortress in Sephoris. They looted the royal armory, distributed its cache of weapons to the city residents, and then attempted to take over of the local government. Under the orders of Caesar Augustus, the Roman governor of Syria ordered his cavalry to slaughter the rebels and burn Sephoris to the ground and enslave its entire population of more than 8,000 residents. Ten years later, Judas of Gamala, a Galilean, leads a revolt of religious zealots. And they likely crucified Jesus of Gamala in Sephoris, where we think Jesus worked as a young man. So the, the city of Sephoris was right next to Galilee. Jesus was a carpenter, um, a, a stonemason also most likely. And we think that Jesus worked in this big kind of metropolis called Sephoris, rebuilding the city that the Romans had just torn down. And so it was in this place where they think that it's very likely Jesus saw this man get crucified for, for fighting back against Rome. Jesus and every other Galilean bore witness to that horror. Judas was a learned man and also a husband who longed to raise his children in a better world. A Galilee ruled by Israelites instead of Roman puppets who crippled the people with unbearable taxes. Judas traveled through the farming villages and the fishing ports of Galilee, preaching a message of sedition to the impoverished peasants, urging them not to pay taxes to Rome or to tithe to the temple in Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem. He even founded a new sect of the Jewish faith, one that espoused a radical new theology of unwavering devotion to the Israelites, one true Lord. Bowing down to Caesar Augustus in Rome was sinful. Judas told everybody who would listen, don't do it. The Romans might have overlooked Judas as, uh, as an overzealous religious crank if he had not raised up an army and displaced tenants and attempted a violent overthrow of the Roman-sponsored government. That action brought an immediate response, Judas must die. They crucified him in Galilee uh, for all the town to see, including Jesus, watching as the Romans did to Judas exactly what they do to him coming up soon. The people longed for the glory days of King David so many hundreds of years ago when the Jews were their own master and God was the undisputed most powerful force in all the cosmos. The residents of Galilee are independent thinkers. Their persistent belief that they will ultimately control their destiny is one reason Judas of Gamala's demand that they rise up against Rome was so profound and effective. This is the world that the young Jesus of Nazareth inhabits. These are the prayers that he hears poured forth Every day, the promise of God's deliverance is the one shaft of daylight that comforts the oppressed people of Galilee. Someday, in some way, if they just hold on, God will send someone to make things right, just as he did with Abraham, just like he did with Moses, just like he did with Daniel, Samson, and David. Ten years after the death of Herod the Great, the populace of Jesus of Nazareth's village and his land eagerly await a new king of the Jews. So to top it all off, the spiritual climate is also incredibly oppressive. It's been 400 years since any Jew has heard anything from God. The religious leaders have taken over. They've set up shop, and they've become incredibly rich and corrupt to the core. And now they have set up a religion that is 100% about doing and nothing to do with relationship with God. Their ancestors have killed all of the previous prophets from God and have never been open to doing things God's way. At the time of Jesus, Caiaphas is the high priest. He rules the roost. He's a puppet of Rome, and he pays tremendous homage to Rome. He's corrupt, he's very rich, and he allows Rome and the Pharisees to oppress all of God's children and the people to the very edge of collapse. In fact, the religious leaders at this time have now created 248 new commandments that the people have to follow and 365 prohibitions, which essentially make it impossible to please God, no matter how hard you try. Let's talk about the temple tax. This is even worse. The money changers, they demand unfair exchange rates for the privilege of turning local money into shekels. The temple high priests also profit from this scam. Within the temple's inner courts are massive vaults filled with the shekels and the foreign coins exchanged each year by pilgrims. When the temple loans that money, as it so often does to peasants who need help paying their taxes, the interest rates are exorbitant. Ledger's sheets inside the temple's grand vaults keep a tally of all the debts, and those who cannot repay suffer severe indignities, the loss of a home, loss of land, loss of livestock, and eventually life as a debt slave or membership in the unclean class. The slums of Lower Jerusalem are packed with families who were driven from their land because they could not repay money that they borrowed from the temple. And so while Passover might be a, a holy holiday about faith and piety, it's also about money. As millions of people come, up to 4 million Jews make their way to Jerusalem each year. Jerusalem's not that big. Think of Oklahoma City as about 1.2 million people altogether. Jerusalem's probably roughly the size of Moore. Can you imagine 4 million people cramming into Moore, Oklahoma? This means more income for the local shop owners and innkeepers, but the temple priests and their Roman masters get most of the profit through taxation and money changing. And even more money is made when the poor must buy a lamb or a dove for the mandatory Passover sacrifice. If a priest should inspect the animal or the bird and find even a single blemish, the sacrifice is deemed unclean, and the peasant will be forced to buy another. And it's no wonder that the people quietly seethe when doing business with the temple priests. Many wish they could burn the ledger books to the ground and loot the temple vaults. And in four decades, the sons and daughters of Israel will actually do just that. 29 A.D., 
The Jews revolt again in Jerusalem. This year, the tensions are running even higher, and the blame is pointed straight at Pilate. Pilate has decided to do a grand gesture and bring water to Jerusalem through a new aqueduct system. And he's announced this plan, and then he looks to the temple, and he says the temple must pay for this whole, uh, this whole setup. And they are furious. They are angry at this ungodly use of the temple taxes. And so in this time, they, they set up a coup where they're going to bring Pilate out. And the Jews are um, parade, they're parading with him, but they're shouting insults at Pilate. And they're saying all these terrible things to him. Pilate expected this to happen. And so what he actually did is he hid hundreds of his own soldiers in plain clothes like the uh, people from the Passover would be wearing as they journeyed into Jerusalem, they're wearing the same clothes. And he commanded all of his soldiers to put swords and clubs inside of their coats so that when people started to jeer at Pilate, they would throw off their cloaks and they slaughtered the crowd. And this is when Jesus comes onto the scene and begins his ministry. What a crazy world that Jesus begins all of this in. He's been ministering three years. His disciples still don't even get what he's doing. Even though he's told them plainly over and over and over, this is what's going to happen. They don't get it. So let's fast forward to six days before his death. Many of the sheep are privately being selected at Mary's house. I mean, throughout their own private homes. And on this day, Lazarus is with Jesus. They're at Lazarus' house. And they're having a meal together. And all of a sudden, Mary comes into Lazarus' home. And she brings this oil of perfume. Who's got the, the big oil? Bring it up. So she brings this big bottle. She breaks it open. And good job, buddy. You get some candy. Did you get some? Get some candy. Here you go. Here you go. Enjoy. More to be had. All right. So she dumps this oil all over Jesus and just covers his head. Can you imagine just covering somebody's head with this oil? And she's preparing Jesus' body for death. She's anointing it for death. And the disciples are mad because this is about a year's worth of wages. And they're like, why didn't we sell that? We could have given that to the poor. What are you doing? And he says, stop it. What she's done is very significant. Maybe out of all the disciples, she's the only one that had a clue what was about to happen. But she's getting ready for Jesus' burial because he's already told them that this is going to happen, right? So she pours it out. She selects him on the day that many people are selecting Jesus. Five days before his death, Sunday, Jesus announces to his disciples, Hey guys, we're going up to Jerusalem. Listen plainly, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They're going to condemn him to death and they will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised from death. Plain as day, Jesus tells his disciples, Here's what's happening in the next couple days. They don't get it at all. The disciples, as they're walking to Jerusalem, they're jockeying for power. James and John ask Jesus if they can be his principal assistants in the new regime, requesting that one of us sit on your right and one of us on your left. And Jesus is looking at them saying, you have no idea what you are asking. They follow Jesus collectively as a group for more than two years. They've been giving up their jobs their wives, whatever semblance of normal life that they once had, and all the disciples hope they will reap the glory that's going to happen when the Messiah overthrows Rome. Peter is so sure that Jesus is about to have a political overthrow that he is making plans for a sword. Ding, ding, ding. Bring it up, bud. Get yourself some candy. I love these little things. Great job. Where is it? Great job. All right. Good job. He's preparing to purchase a sword. But Jesus has no plans to wage war and no plans to form a new government. Rather than upbraid James and John, he calmly deflects their request. And he then calls the disciples together, uh, imperiling them to focus on serving others rather than fighting the opposition. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The next day... Monday morning, four days before his death. It's the official lamb selection day. All of Israel is choosing their spotless lambs, and Israel's lambs are entering into the beautiful city. Who's got the lamb? 
Ding, ding, ding. That one's really cute. Great job. Get some more candy, buddy. Oh, Micah. Micah's candy. <laughs> She's not here. She went out. Yeah, you can save it for her for later. All right. So they're selecting their lambs. Jesus selects two disciples and gives them a most special task. To go to the village ahead, he orders them at once. He says, you're going to find a donkey tied there in the village ahead with a colt by her. Who's got the donkey? Micah again. Ding, ding, ding. Great job, Rachel. Donkey. Where is the donkey? Donkey. This is why I didn't draw. <laughs> yes, the donkey. Yeah, you can get more candy. Yep. So Jesus says, you're going to find this donkey. Untie it, bring it to me. Then Jesus and the other ten disciples set out. Crowds of pilgrims press in around Jesus as he walks. Their voices carry the familiar draw of their regions. The pilgrims are excited that their journey is almost over, and many are now rejoicing that the famous Jesus of Nazareth is in their presence. Just on the other side of Bethpage, two disciples stand waiting. One holds the bridle of a donkey that's never been ridden. The animal is bareback. A disciple removes his cloak, and he lays it across the animal's back as an improvised saddle. The other disciples remove their cloaks, and they lay them on the ground as an act of submission, forming a carpet on which the donkey can walk. Following this example, many pilgrims begin to remove their own cloaks, and they lay them on the ground. Others gather palm fronds and snap branches off of oil and olive and cypress trees, and they wave them with delight. This is the sign everybody has been waiting for. This is the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. Blessed is the king, shouts the disciple. And the people join in, exalting Jesus and crying out to him, Hosanna, they chant, Hosanna in the highest. Jesus rides forth on the donkey, and the people bow down. Oh, Lord, save us, they implored, thankful that the Christ has finally come to rescue them. Oh, Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The words of thanksgiving are from Psalms 118, which is a song that they're going to sing in just a few days at the Passover. This is the moment for which these simple peasants have waited so long. Of all the thousands of pilgrims who set out from Galilee, these lucky few who can tell their children and their children's children that they witnessed the grand moment when Jesus Christ rode triumphantly into Jerusalem. But not everybody bows down. A group of Pharisees has been waiting for Jesus. And now they look on with disgust. They call out to him, giving the Nazarene one last chance to avoid a charge of blasphemy. Teacher, they yell, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus refuses. I tell you, if they keep quiet, even the stones will cry out. And by now, others who have heard that Jesus is near, they have run out from Jerusalem, spreading palm branches across the path of the Nazarene. This is the traditional sign of triumph and glory. The donkey stops atop the Mount of Olives, and Jesus takes it all in. This is his day. This is the day he's waited for his whole life. It's been pointing to this one moment when he will ride forth to stake his claim to the title of King of the Jews. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And in this moment, the nation of Israel has selected their Passover lamb. And suddenly, Jesus begins to weep. For the past three years, Jesus has been adored, but he's also been the subject to attack and suspicion. Even his disciples, despite their belief in Jesus and his teachings, sometimes care more about jockeying for power than understanding his true nature and his message in the world. He has been very specific with the disciples that he is more than just an earthly Christ, but they don't understand. He's told them again and again that he is a divine being, the son of God, and they cannot comprehend this concept. Jesus made it clear that he is the Christ, but that his kingdom is not of this world. They don't understand what he's talking about. Three times Jesus has told his disciples that I'm going to die this week. But his followers refuse to even contemplate that. And in this moment of triumph atop the hill, Jesus is experiencing deep agony in his soul. So he comes down, 
that day. He goes into the temple. He observes quietly. He goes back up to the mount. The next day, Tuesday, three days before his death, he's inspected in the temple. These are the days where the Jews are cleaning out their homes for leaven. They're, they're cleaning things out, getting things just right for this holy holiday. And they're, they're, they're getting rid of the sin in their homes to prepare for Passover. After the lambs are selected by the people, then they are to be inspected and searched over for any blemishes to be found. Who has the inspector hat? Yes. Good job, Jeff. Good job, buddy. So Jesus, there he is. He goes into the temple in that morning. And he's about to see the inspectors. And what he finds is this wicked and corrupt money-changing system with all these people packed into this tiny area with no hope of anything different. And Jesus looks at the money-changing tables. Bring it up, buddy. And in this moment of holy anger, he flips the temples of all the money changers. He begins causing this huge chaos, throwing things around. And he's saying, this is my father's house. Get this out of here. You cannot have this sin in this house. Then he stays in the temple. And for the next several days, Jesus is attacked by the Pharisees, by these inspectors who are coming against him, trying to find any fault inside of him. They're setting him up. They're trapping him in all these different theological debates, trying to get him to fail. And he is pure and spotless every single inspection that they bring his way to the point that the Pharisees end up saying, we better stop because we're, we're getting our butts whipped. <laughs> He's getting everything right. We can't find anything wrong with him. And in fact, in John 18, 38, Pilate actually says, I find no basis for charge against him. He declares him spotless, the pure lamb of Israel. Nobody dared ask him any more questions after that, Mark 12 says. On Thursday, the day before his death, Jesus gets ready for the Last Supper. Jesus, he recognizes that this is now his appointed time. Matthew 26, 18, he says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. These are the directions Jesus told his disciples to tell the benefactor who would prepare the upper room. And remember that the Passover, the Seder meal, the day of atonement, this was God's appointed time to deal with sin. And now Jesus in the flesh is realizing his appointed time is here. So the Passover meal is being prepared, and we've got the four cups of wine. So, Jack, can you hand me the uh, Capri Suns and the grape juice and the Pop-Tarts? Who's got the Pop-Tarts? Bring it up. Here you go. I'll trade you. Oh, no. <laughs> Sorry, that was intentional. Who else has a Capri Sun? Third Capri Sun. Oh, I got a drink. Blood of Jesus. Bless it. <laughs> All right. So, Jesus has got the matzah. No, it's pierced. Look, it's perfect. Um, the matzah. And he's got the one in the middle, and he breaks the bread. Okay. I'm going to read this. Oh, first. Uh, where is it? What else? Pop-Tarts, thank you. Good job. So he recognizes this is his time. They, he sits down to have a Seder meal before the official Seder meal with the people. He takes the bread out of the middle, the middle pizza matzah. It is bruised. It is striped. It is pierced. And can you imagine in this moment the revelation that is unleashed upon the disciples? He pulls out the middle one, something they've done for their entire life, you know, for 30 years at this point for these guys. They've been watching it done. They don't fully understand. And all of a sudden, Jesus is proclaiming. He pulls out the bread, and he breaks the middle piece, and he says, this is my body given to you. Can you imagine the revelation in that moment coming through? And then he reaches for the four cups. And again, the four cups stand for, I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. And I will take you out. And Jesus reaches for the third cup, which is, I will redeem you. 
this is my blood redeeming you from your sins. And he says, take it and drink it. Again, the revelation that is poured out, I can't even imagine. So Jesus and the guys, they then go out to the Mount of Olives to pray. It's midnight. It's the same time that the angel of death came on the first Passover. Jesus is arrested and he's taken to the high priest's personal home for an illegal trial. Everything about Jesus' interrogation is illegal. It takes place at night. Jesus is asked to incriminate himself without a lawyer. And Annas has no authority to pass a sentence. It's also highly unusual for a prisoner to be brought to the high priest's personal residence rather than to the prison cells at the Roman barracks. Jesus is interrogated. He's spit on. He's beaten. He's thrown into a pit that the high priest has in his own home. (laughs) Aren't you glad I don't have any pits in my home? (laughs) Psalms 88 says it talks about Jesus in the pit. The next morning, early morning, Jesus is taken over to Herod's palace where Pilate is living in Jerusalem. Pilate comes out to the praetorium and he finds no issue with Jesus. He sends him back to Herod. Herod won't mess with Jesus. He sends him back to Pilate. Pilate is pressured by the Jews. And so he thinks, if I scourge Jesus, that'll be good enough. And Jesus is sent over to Antonio Fortress. Jesus is scourged with the whip with nine strips of leather with bone fragments and metal attached to the ends. Who has the belt? Good job, Micah. Welcome back. You have a bunch of candy awaiting you. Here you go, bro. Put it up here, yeah. Bless you, child. (laughs) Jesus is scourged with this whip of nine strips of leather, bone fragments, and metal. Low scourging posts are permanently positioned there for this task at the fortress. Affixed to the top of each post is a metal ring. Each condemned man will be brought forth with his hands tied. The executioners will strip him of his clothing, and then they're going to force him to his knees before binding his hands over his head to the metal ring. The wrists will then also be shackled to the ring. This locks the body in position, preventing any squirming or other attempts to dodge the blows of the flagellum. The key to the executioner's art is not how hard they whip the man, but the effort with which they yank the whips, metal and bones, fleckled tendrils away from the flesh after each blow. For this is when the primary damage to the body is done. To prove themselves superior, the professional killers strive to grip the wooden handle of the flagellum a little harder than their peers and lean into each lash with just a bit more strength. And if they do their jobs exceptionally well, they might even expose the victim's internal organs, even to the innermost veins and arteries, so that the hidden inward parts of the body, both their bowels and their members, are exposed for viewing. After this... The guards beat Jesus more. They mock him. They begin to play the game of kings at the Antonio Fortress. And this was a game that was done throughout the Roman Empire where the soldiers would get bored. And they had a horrific game that they would play with different soldiers and prisoners. It's etched into the floor of Antonio Fortress. Rachel and I have put our fingers on the board, on the board game. And basically the way the game would go is they would pick some sorry person to be the king. And they would mock them as the king. They would strip them naked. They would put fake king's clothes on them. They would make a a crown oftentimes of thorn and they would shove it on the king's head. And then they had dice made of goat's feet that they would roll and, and throw, and they would begin to roll dice to grab the possessions of the king, and they would take the possessions. All right, this one's for his house in Rome. This one's for his wife. This one's for his kid. This one's for, they would re- take all of this person's possessions away from them. And then at the end of the game, the final roll was for one of the Roman centurions to murder the king with their sword. Horrific game. And that is why we know that Jesus, not why we know, but that's why they put the crown of thorns on his head. That's why they put the robe of purple on him. That's why they mocked him. Oh, king of the Jews, king of the Jews. Because they're playing this game that they created. 
but they're speaking prophetically into the universe of what's actually happening in this moment. Jesus is then sent to Pilate once again, and he's shown before the Jews. They want Jesus dead, and they begin to chant for him to be crucified. Pilate asks who they want to release, Barabbas the murderer or Jesus the Christ. And they all chant, Barabbas, Jesus is given a cross and marched to Skull Mountain. Who's got the cross? Bring it on, girl. Good job. <laughs> you can put your fingers together. <laughs> Enjoy your candy. I'm sorry. I'm being rude. Forgive me, Jesus. You have little hands. It's true. Jesus is put on the cross in the same position as the Passover lambs. He's hung by their forearms. Skinned, the blood flowing, but not one broken bone. Jesus is placed on the cross at 9 a.m. He suffers for six hours. Meanwhile, the city is abuzz, getting ready for the Passover at the temple, which is very close to Jesus on the cross. Many think just within earshot, just over the hill, he can hear and see what's happening at the temple. Three hours into his agony, the sky goes black. The only other time in history that the sky goes black in the middle of the day is a clear representation that God is dealing with sin in this moment. The Jews would have immediately known what this means on this day. The sky goes black. During this time on the cross, God is pouring forth all of his harsh, rough wrath and anger upon Jesus. Every ounce of anger and hatred and judgment that God has for the sins of all mankind forever is poured upon Jesus in those hours on the cross. To the point that God has no more wrath or anger left in him because he dealt with it all 100% while on the cross. Jesus cries out during this time, why have you forsaken me? And God in this time has turned his back away from Jesus. At 3 p.m., the temple shofar blows, and the Jews rush into the temple. Can we play it for me? Just push one of those buttons. There it is. The shofar is blowing. You want some more candy? I will promise I will try harder this time. All right, we only dropped one. Good job. So the temple, the shofar blows, and a mad rush. I mean, kind of like Black Friday. You're trying to get in there, get your thing as quick as you can, because all these people now have to take their lamb. You're fighting with probably a million other people in their lambs to get in there and get your lamb slaughtered and back so you can get it back home to begin to cook it in the uh, oven that you've created. They said that during these days at Passover, every year, people would create these big ovens on the side of the road just everywhere you could look because there wasn't enough ovens to cook the Passover lambs each year. So the shofar blows, and they begin to slaughter the lambs. They're taking the blood of the lamb. Who's got the Gatorade? Good job. They take the blood of the lamb. You want more? All right, here we go. Oh, just a little. Okay, here's one. <laughs> oh, it's, oh, three. Oh, three. Just three. All right. <clears throat> the blood of the lamb. They slaughter the sheep, they put a bowl under, they catch the blood, and then there's a priest right next to them, and they hand the blood to the next priest, and then another priest, and they, like a fire line, like a fire bucket line, they pass it all the way down to the altar. They're splashing the blood onto the altar to cover over the sins of that family, and then they take the lamb, they hang it right there. So can you imagine, Jesus himself has become the lamb, the sacrificial lamb in the flesh, and in this moment, those lamps, for the, the last time, are being hung in the exact same manner that he is. Their blood being poured out. And then at the temple, they begin to chant Psalms 113 and 118. Lots of verses throughout there. But some of those things that they're chanting, Jesus can hear them from where he is. The cords of death entangled me. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death for his righteous ones. 
Open for me the gates of righteousness. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And Jesus hears it. It's all about him. It's in this hour, this three o'clock hour, that Jesus, he shouts out, it is finished. And he surrenders his life as a self-sacrifice, the perfect provisions for our sins. When he gives up his life, the earth quakes. Who's got the broken rocks? Good job, buddy. The earth quakes. Can you imagine? You're, it's pitch black for hours. And at the end of those three hours, all of a sudden, the earth is shaking. The rocks break open. They burst open. And not only that, but it says that the dead came out of their graves. The dead came back to life. And all of a sudden, the dead people that you haven't seen in generations are walking around town. <coughs> and in that moment, the veil at the temple, who's got the veil? Bring it up, girl. Good job, girl. <laughs> you did so good. The veil. <laughs> These kids hate me. I'm sorry, guys. I'm just having fun. The veil is torn. Remember, three to four hundred people to put it in place. Six stories tall, six inches thick. And it's torn in a room that's only 30 feet wide. It's torn from the top all 60 feet all the way down. Which to me says, if you're pulling a sheet of paper in half, you're going to have to go farther than that 30 feet allows on both sides. Which says to me, this must have been like, a, like scissors, slicing this thing, ripping this thing down, because you can't pull far enough. So this huge veil that has protected God from the people because of their sins for generations and generations is cut down the middle in a surgical manner. And all of a sudden, God comes out of his box because the Passover, the payment of sin is completely finished and done. And at that moment, Jesus goes into the earth. The Bible says that he's there for three days. He takes captivity captive. And then he rises from the dead. And he ascends onto high where he takes his rightful place as the king of all kings. So what I want to do now is just thank him. I'm going to turn on some music. And we just want to pour out our praises to him for his goodness. If you'll stand up with me, y'all can turn the lights down a little bit.